last time when we had a session we went up to stanza 36 in chapter 1 there are total of 47 stanzas basically right from stanza 37 right up to stanza 46 arjun goes on and on in the same vein which is that how can I, you know, he's finding every excuse under the sun why he should not have the battle. So he says, he goes to the extent of saying, Dhritarashtra's sons are my relatives. How can I be happy killing my own cousins, even though their intelligence is clouded by evil, but I can't kill them because I don't want to become a sinner like them. And he's pleading with Krishna again and again, trying to give every kind of uh, reasoning that is. He says in the destruction of a family, a lot of culture gets destroyed. It finishes. He says that when a family gets destroyed, along with it, it's traditions, religion, culture, all of that gets destroyed. Family in India, in our Vedantic philosophy, family is your base unit. And then you have, from a family, you have a village, you have a city, you have a country. So the very root of culture is the family. So when families get destroyed, the entire culture right up to the nation starts getting affected and destroyed. And this is the first argument that Arjun actually has that is valid because what he said is right. What does destroy a lot of families, a lot of happiness, the only valid argument he had. But Krishna stays quiet even through that. Arjun keeps going on and on. He says that when the when there's a war, there's a disruption, the women of the family become corrupt. Once the women are corrupted, there's an intermingling of caste. Now, guys, let me just stop one minute here and explain in the Vedic, in the Vedanta life. Caste was not the way we see caste today. Yes, there was Brahmins, there were Kshatriyas, there's, there were Vaish, uh, Vaish, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce it. There were the business class and there were the Shudras. Now, this was done, this division of caste was done on the basis of knowledge. So, if you were uh, knowledgeable, if you were well-read, if you were educated, you became a Brahmin. It was not on the basis of what your surname was. It was not on the basis of what family you were born into. It was based, the caste system was based on your personal ability. And it was a very highly valued system. It was because it was based on mental and physical capability of a person. An intermingling of caste meant that the wrong person and got the wrong job which they were inappropriate to do so if you were skinny but you were from the shut you got into the kshatriya caste you where how can you defend how can you fight a battle how can you do anything and what arjun said is when people intermix the gene the gene pool gets diluted each generation passes down its culture and tradition to the next and this all gets destroyed when there's a war and there is a lot of death in india culture and religion was one of one and the same the hindu dharam is not a dharam it is a way of life which is why all these parts of culture were so important for a solid foundation to a society to allow the society to function unhindered dharma is was is in the Vedantic philosophy, a set of values through which we enhance 
a spiritual growth. Dharma was not about religion. So we had a lot of dharmas like the Kshatriya Dharma, which was a set of values that the warrior class was supposed to use and follow. You had the family dharam, which was all about how families are supposed to function. So dharma, which has completely been misinterpreted in subsequent generations, was not about religion. It was about a way of life, which is why Hinduism is a way of life. It is not a religion. Arjun Kev keeps talking about this through all this. Krishan is again very, very silent. And through his silence, he is goading Arjun into getting more vocal. And finally, when we come to stanza 47, Arjun having vented all his emotions out, having talked everything out, sits down, throws his bow aside. Now remember the stance of Arjun when he went in the center of the battlefield. His stance was very warrior, the bow in his hand, one leg on the wheel of the chariot, standing as the king surveying every or everybody. Arrogance and pride. That arrogance and pride has come to a downfall where he throws his bow, sits down in the chariot, totally dejected, holding his head in his hands. And this is where chapter one ends. Before we go on to chapter two, I want to do a recap. There was some very important lessons we learned in chapter one. We learned the Arjun disease. Now, Arjun disease is something all of us suffer from time to time. At times, it's situation-based and at times, we suffer from it our whole life and don't even know about. What it really is, is we have an impression about ourselves. We have a perception about who we are. And then we are faced with reality which shows us that that is not really the truth because normal circumstances, the way we perceive ourselves is not the way the, the world perceives us. Like a simple thing, I could, I could think I am very, you know, inside my head, I have built this image of how soft and how, you know, docile and meek that I am. That's my perception of me. But the world is seeing me as very strong, very aggressive, very, uh, I know my own mind. So there's a gap. That gap, when it gets destroyed, when delusion gets confronted by reality, what happens is the Arjun disease. You come to a standstill and in strong cases, in a lot of cases, it's a rude awakening. When it's very serious or when the situation is very severe, it could lead to anxiety attacks, panic attacks. That loss of control will lead to that anxiety or panic attack. And like I said earlier, in very severe cases, you completely come to a standstill and uh, can't function at all. The flight mechanism kicks in. Even more severe cases, you are likely to even try and commit suicide as a flight mode. This is what Arjun disease is. You lose your mental reasoning, you lose your mental balance when your delusion or your belief which was not correct has come to uh, has come in touch 
with actual reality. There is a very beautiful story in our scriptures and our mythology that explains it so beautifully. Narad Muni, one of the sages who was also the son of Brahma, was considered himself the biggest devotee of Lord Vishnu. And one day he goes to Vishnu with all his arrogance saying, oh, there cannot be a bigger devotee than me of you. And Vishnu just smiles and tells him, here is a pot of water, place it on your head, make sure not one drop of water is spilled, circumnavigate the earth three times and come back to me. When Narad comes back to Vishnu, Vishnu asks him, so did you spill water, Narad? So proudly. Now, see, I am such a devotee of yours. I didn't spill one drop of water. And Vishnu then asked him, how many times did you remember me during this process? And Narad says, are you mad? How could I remember you? I was so busy. The terrain was rough. I was careful not to spill the water. Of course, I didn't have the time to remember you. And Vishnu then takes him to a poor farmer's house where that farmer has not got enough to eat. He's working a 14-hour day, toiling, then lighting the fire, cooking his food and through the entire grind that he was going through. The only name on his lips was Vishnu. He was remembering Vishnu 24-7. So Vishnu says, that is my greatest devotee. What happened to Narad? Reality met delusion. He came to a complete standstill. He was absolutely silent, couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And then, of course, because in our mythology, he has known as the son of God. He is uh, immortal in his own right. He found his equilibrium very fast. But that is what happens. This is what I'm trying to say. Our belief of ourselves, our perception about ourselves may not be the same as the way the world perceives us. And when that belief of ourselves gets shattered, that is the Arjun disease. And that is when you come to a standstill. Another very way, very good way to explain this is like when you think you're I thought I was very intelligent and I would excel in my 12 board exams. But instead of studying for my board exam, I remember one night before the exam, I actually sat down and all I did was figure out ways to cheat, how to make cheat sheets, how to hide them, how to write small, how to cram it into a small piece of paper. That is all I did. Obviously, when I went and gave the exam, mind you, I'd worked very hard. I had spent 14 hours every day trying to figure everything else except study. In my mind, I'd worked very hard. When I gave and sat, the, uh, sat for the exam, I was not prepared for the exam. So obviously my result was not too great. I was shocked, shell shocked. Why had I not excelled the exam? Reality met delusion and I couldn't show my face to anybody. So for a very long time, I was kind of like literally hiding my face and trying to disappear because it was loss of face. Reality met delusion. The delusion that I would get a good result without any kind of preparation. Reality, I did not do preparation. The result, a sense of being let down and questioning my own intelligence. This is Arjun disease to the T. In this case, it was situational. In a lot of cases, it, it people suffer from it all their lives. There is also a part of the uh, Arjun disease is also the subconscious fear of losing. 
in our minds because we built up this huge image what happens with arjun arjun had built up this huge image of how strong he was what a warrior he was and when he saw the all the big guns on the other side dronacharya your bhishma uh, pitama he when he saw kripacharya he saw all these big wigs on the other side he realized that it was he is not going to win that battle like this it was he there was a very high probability he would lose that battle and that fear of failure made him also come to a standstill which is what we do to ourselves too the fear of failure stops us from taking that next step stops us from trying something new how many times have you heard somebody 50 plus saying that i won't be able to learn how to work a computer i am too old to learn now fact of the matter is no one is too old to learn but what we are scared of is looking like a fool so we are not even willing to try we are scared that we will lose face we are scared we don't have the intelligence we are scared we don't have the brains to understand what is happening and that is why we don't even attempt which is what arjun was doing his fear was losing face his fear was actually losing the battle and he wanted to run away from that battle also a part of the arjun disease sometimes in some cases it is also the fact that and this is not a part of gita it is just another fact about very often there is that fear in our minds that if we learn this then we will have to do, do the work so it's better to say we can't it's the easy way out that is the lazy man's way out sometimes we do it for that reason also it is you need to understand why and what brings you to a standstill another very major lesson in the gita in chapter 1 and it is the prevalent lesson all through accountability we are afraid to take action if the consequences are very far reaching arjun knew that he if he walked away from the war the consequences would be huge he did not want that burden on his head so he desperately tried to get krishna to agree with him that way there was someone to pass the blame on to it was it was so easy for him to say it was not me krishna said it was the right thing and i bowed down to his wisdom he's very happily passed the blame on to somebody else it is like in this current pandemic situation instead of taking precautions you go out you party you don't keep social distancing you don't sanitize your hands you don't wear a mask you get covid or worse you become a carrier and you pass covid on to somebody else they get sick and die and you will blame it on kismat you will blame it on destiny you will blame it on the government for not taking adequate measures was it the fault of the government or kismat or destiny or did you bring it on to yourself very important to understand accountability what krishna was what ved vyasa was trying to teach us through all of this we need to be accountable for our own actions we need to be we need to man up and say yes it was my choice right or wrong irrespective but it was my choice and stop blaming that poor god up there who's the punching board for everybody jab when you don't understand something when you can't figure something out it's so easy to say oh ye to bhagwan ki karni hai this is god's doing hai give that poor guy a break yaar 
He did nothing. You did it. It is choices you took that brought you to whatever point that you have been brought to. Take accountability. And this is what Krishna does all through the Gita. He is getting, he does not tell Arjun what to do or what not to do. He through various processes brings Arjun to a point of understanding but I'm pretty sure had Arjun at the end of all of it had said okay that's it I'm done I am not fighting this battle there would have been no battle as simple as that we need to be aware and accountable for our own decisions all of us are in the habit of blame games. Classic example would be of a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. The mother-in-law blames the daughter-in-law for taking away her son. The daughter-in-law blames the mother-in-law for not accepting and constantly trying to create a wedge between her and her husband. Neither of them is willing to accept their role in the friction or take accountability of their own actions. If either one of them changed or changed their behavior patterns, this cycle would end. Please, guys, wake up. Start becoming accountable for every action in your life. It is your choice. Nobody holds a gun to your head to do or not do something. It is your choice. A very major factor that is the undercurrent of the entire Mahabharat, not just the Gita, the entire Mahabharat was about active resistance to evil. We all need to man up and speak against injustice when we see it. It is every one of us has a role to play in it. It cannot be that it's somebody else's responsibility. It is this one's responsibility. It is that. No. In no matter how small a way, it is all our individual responsibilities which becomes then a collective to actively fight against our wrongdoing like like let let's just talk about climate change it is all we can all see it we can see it happen we can see the destruction but what happens because it is not going to happen in our lifetime most probably at least the ones who are 50 40 to 40 and above it's probably we are not going to see it Maybe there's a chance our children may not see yes. it in that level. But that does that absolve us of the responsibility of trying to make the change, taking steps, no matter how small, to prevent this from happening. Talk about it. Call it out. A, a active resistance to evil. We have to do that. Another very simple example of active resistance to evil. Now, there was this case when there was an ancestral property that was divided. It happened in our family. Ancestral property divided between all the siblings. And one of the brothers suddenly decided that he was encroaching on the property of somebody, of another one of the brothers. His children knew what he's doing is wrong. But they did not speak out with the father. They did not say a word to the father. They condoned the father's actions. Whether it was out of fear of the father, and I'm talking of adult children. They were like in their 40 pluses when this whole scenario happened and they didn't call out. They didn't say a word to the father. How was that right? It doesn't matter whether it's your parent or it's your child or it's your grandparent or somebody else. When you see something wrong happening, Please call out. Please talk about it. Please at least voice an opinion. This is so important and so much a part of 
our culture why have we forgotten it why is it so easy for us when we see some kind of abuse when we see some some crap happening or oh, put it under the carpet if we don't see it it's not happening but that's not true it is happening irrespective and it is our moral responsibility to call it out to talk about it to bring it to the forefront and these are the very valuable lessons we take away from chapter 1 all the chapters of the gita elaborate from the upanishad a statement that is tat tvam asi you are that it is this statement is one of the mahakavyas or the great sayings all uh, in all the four vedas each veda has one great saying like in the rig veda it says prajnanam brahma inside is brahman that is the rig veda i am atma brahma this self this atma is brahma this is from the uh, atharva veda tattvam asi which is the basis of the gita it is the essence of the gita which is i am me or the uh, that essence is me is you this is from the samveda and aham brahmasmi i think aham brahmasmi has been overdone in one of the tv serials so don't remember which one but i think it has been overdone but that is i am brahman according to the aryan civilization or the vedic civilization a brahman was somebody who was exceedingly learned righteous correct as a person that is how you were called a brahman all these sayings express the insight that the individual the self which appears as a separate existence is actually in essence the atma part of the manifestation of the whole the brahman this is the advaitya advaitya vedanta or singularity which is preached in all the vedas in all the upanishads and the gita every one of these take us to advait to singularity the oneness and that is what we all try and achieve ved vyas gave the essence of the vedantic way of of life the tattvam asi that is the basis of the gita the first six chapters cover the tvam or the you aspect it's all about you and we've already seen that when he's when krishna is discussing the accountability active resistance to evil the dharma the philosophy it's all the counseling is all about you the next six chapters uh, six chapters the gita as you all know is 18 chapters so the next six chapters cover the tat or the that aspect and the last six chapters cover the asi this is how the gita is broken up into 6 6 and 6 chapters in in chapter 2 right up to chapter 2 is a very important chapter because it actually covers the essence of the gita the entire teachings of the gita which then as each chapter goes 
Krishna elaborates on point by point by point. But the basic essence is captured in chapter 2. Here when we start the chapter, Sanjay is giving a description to Dhritarashtra and he says that oh, Arjun, overcome with grief and full of pity, eyes full of tears. And this is the time seeing that picture of Arjun. Krishna speaks and Krishna basically what Sanjay is giving a description of Arjun is he is calling him a victim of the circumstances as opposed to being a master of the situation which Arjun in his pre present neurotic state had allowed himself to become a slave of the situation instead of rising above and dealing with it. Arjun is uh, is crying and then Krishna for the first time speaks. He follows a very, very simple counseling tactic when somebody is suffering from a lot of delusions, when somebody has brought themselves to a state of panic and have come to a state of shutdown. The way to deal with them is shock them out of it. If you, if you notice or remember, every time somebody has been having a panic attack or is, you know, uh, exceedingly emotional what do you do you give them a tight slap to jerk them out of it krishan did exactly the same thing but through words he lashes out at arjun with very harsh hard hitting words he wanted to shock arjun out of his grief and his dejection. Arjun had slowly but steadily allowed himself to be sucked into an abyss of doubt, fear and zero self-confidence. Krishna was shaking him out of it, a theoretical slap. This is a very, very powerful counseling tool that you use, which is called a confrontational approach that you actually confront the other person. It's like holding them, shaking them and saying, wake up, what are you doing the harsh words equivalent of slapping a person out of uh, out of the hysteria krishna's words are really really he tells arjun why are you behaving in such an un-aryan fashion what is wrong with you aryan behavior is like a brahman behavior it's very correct it is very righteous it is to do the right thing and what he's telling arjun that the true test of a person's character is when he is facing tough situations. The ability to rise above a situation and deal with it is the Aryan behavior. Arjun was not doing that. He was not being able to navigate the speed bumps in life and he was not being able to deal with the situation the way it was. So Krishna was shocking Arjun out of his despot despondency when he gets his attention by using these hard words finally krishna tells arjun to get up and act he says arjun to all of this what krishna says at least he stopped crying he started listening his hysteria has broken he but he's continuing in the same vein because he's not convinced he says how can i shoot my arrows on in a battle on people like bhishma pitama and dronacharya who are worthy of being worshipped rather than being 
fought against. Basically, what Arjuna tells uh, Arjun tells Krishna is that again he's trying to convince himself. He's trying to convince Krishna because the, even though Arjun has snapped him out of his hysteria, but that doubt, the fear has still not gone. So he's still trying to convince Krishna that how can I battle against those people that I should actually be worshipping, who are my seniors, who are my elders, who are my gurus. Arjun completely forgot that this was a dharam battle. This was a battle of good against evil. According to, and it was a battle for the greater good. So when you're fighting a battle of good against evil, when you're fighting a battle for the greater good, there is no I in it. The I doesn't exist. It becomes an us and a we because you're fighting for the greater good. And this is a very strong part of Vedanta philosophy also, that the more we identify with the I, the less we are able to do what is right. Because what is right may not be something that the I is willing to do or can do. or is, It's sometimes doing the right thing is, is detrimental to that I, the me, I, me, myself. And what the Vedanta philosophy does teach us, what Krishna was trying to explain to Arjun was that this battle is above you. It is more than you. It is not about you. Arjun had focused on the I or the personal ego and forgotten the larger picture. The conscious mind receives information through the senses, perception and emotion and sends that information to the subconscious mind which then adds from past references and memories and in sense instructions to the body and mind to have uh, to act this is something that happens every second of the day the conscious mind perceives it sends the information to the brain through the neurons through the nerves when the brain receives that in information it collaborates it with past memories it goes into the database, does a double check and then sends information to the body to act. When we come apart, when we become hysterical, we lose the ability to do this basic analysis both on a mental as well as a physical, on an intellectual plane. And Arjun, through his misreading of the situation, had brought both his conscious and his subconscious mind to come to a standstill. He had created such a push and pull that he didn't know whether to go ahead or go back. Arjun says this. He says, I am confused about my duty. I'm not able to come to a decision and I am going to submit to you, Krishna, and ask you what to do handing over the accountability to somebody else that, you know, I'm submitting myself to you. Please tell me what to do. Tell me how to do. He says he doesn't, right now, he's brought himself to such a standstill that he does not understand what is dharma and what is a dharma. His mind was in a complete state of confusion. He is submitting to Krishna as a student. And this is, there is a very, very uh, symbiotic relationship between a teacher and a student. As much as a teacher has responsibility towards the student, the student too has a duty towards the teacher. This is also very strongly laid down in the Vedantic philosophy. This is also the basis of the Gurukul system. So Arjun 
said, I bow my head to Krishna, whatever you say is right. Now it is Krishna's duty to bring Arjun onto the correct path, to make him see that the battle that was happening was happening which was way beyond one individual that was Arjun. It was not about his preferences, his fears, his likes, his dislikes. This was a battle for the greater good of the people of Dharam versus Adharam. In this uh, stanzas, in stanzas uh, 7, 8 and 9, Vyasa with a lot of sarcasm uses the words that calls Arjun the destroyer of foes. That's a very, very sarcastic tone because destroyer of foes, of foes, destroyer of enemies is sitting there dejected, hand in his head, tears pouring down his eyes. Where is this? It is also a way of boosting up the morale of Arjun. So Krishna was both being sarcastic as well as at the same time he trying to boost up Arjun's confidence that oh you are the destroyer of wars. You are you are that person that will destroy all the enemies. You are the brave warrior. He's trying to build him up. Arjun says he will not fight. He lapses into what is known as the Tushneem Bhava. This is when the Tushneem Bhava, according to the Vedantic philosophy, is when somebody is stunned by the situation, has lost control of all his senses and awareness of what is happening around him. This, is a, this sudden impact creates a sense of blackout. This is what is called the Tushneem Bhava. You know the beauty of the Gita, the beauty of the words that are written, written so many thousand years back, but when Vyasa talks about the senses, the perception which has been written in the Gita, it's been written in the Upanishads of how the senses take in the message that we, it is not the senses are just the five senses, the eyes, nose, ears, uh, taste, smell, whatever. These are not how we perceive it. They are just something through which we take in information which is relayed to the brain, which then correlates it with existing data in the database and then sends out messages to the body to act. This is also known as the map of the world by NLP, which came out currently. NLP is probably a few decades old as a science, but they talk about exactly this map of consciousness that every human being has a separate map, map of consciousness or a map of the world. Two people who are witnessing exactly the same situation will not have the same perception about the situation and will not take away the same memories of that situation because the mapping that's happening inside your brain is happening with correlation you're absorbing and there's a correlation of data that data correlated could be from childhood memories past memories immediate past memories whatever it is so no two people will view the same situation the same way or have the same recall of that situation. And they talked about exactly this in the Gita when? 3,000 years back. 
It is amazing the kind of knowledge our ancients had and it always surprises me when people call it new age. How is this knowledge new age here? Yeah, it's been there for from when and how. If we could pick up even a portion of that knowledge, I am sure we would do much better as people, as communities, as the world. So coming back to this, Sanjay explains all this in detail to Dhritarashtra and Sanjay is really vocal about what Arjun is saying, very vocal about what Krishna is saying. He is hoping that even now this blind man gets to see the reality and stops a war that is going to destroy hundreds and thousands of people. But Dhritarashtra, of course, is blind and does not want to see anything of what is happening. This is also what happens when you are exceedingly attached to something. When you are too attached, you condone behavior patterns that are not correct. And that is what Dhritarashtra was doing. He was so attached, one to the throne, two to the power, so attached to his children that he could not see the evil that was happening. This kind of attachment never did good to anybody. Be attached. Love. Classic example of parents. Love your children no matter what. Unconditionally as parents love your children. But don't allow it to blind in you to their faults. So if a child of mine went and uh, uh, they, uh, robbed somebody or burgled somebody, I would hold them, I would hug them, I'd do everything, but I would also march them to the police station and give them up saying, they've done something wrong. My love for them will make me protect them, but will not make me allow them to get away with misdeeds. Somewhere attachment becomes the reason, in fact, the root cause of a lot of what happens is our excessive attachment to things that we should not have. I mean, have the attachment, but don't allow it to blind in you. Half the world that I see, actually 80% of the world that I see is either a Dhritarashtra, who is exceedingly attached, so is blind, or I see a Gandhari who has put all her intellect on the side, put a bandage over her eyes that what I can't see is not happening. 70% of the world works on this. If everybody actually opened their eyes and started seeing, maybe a lot of evil that is happening would come to an end. Maybe a lot of the rapes would stop. Maybe a lot of the abuses would stop. I think we all need to wake up. We all need to sit up, open eyes and actually start seeing and not allow our attachment to whatever it is, be it house, money, property, children, business, uh, work, we should not allow that attachment to blinden us the way it has been shown in the Gita with Dhritarashtra and Gandhari where in spite of being warned again and again and again, the blind king chose not to stop. Had he chosen to stop it, they would not have been, they say, according to mythology, that when the Mahabharata happened, for seven generations, the soil of Kurukshetra was red because there was so much of blood that had flowed on that soil. Krishna, very nicely, smilingly, says to Arjun, who is still standing in the middle of the two armies, in the middle of the battlefield, just before the battle drums have been sounded, everything has been said. He is standing there 
and it's a beautiful in stanza 10 there's a beautiful simile that Ved Vyasa has drawn where he says that uh, the ego is Arjun the body is the chariot actions are the weapons senses are the horses and control is the mind and pure intellect super consciousness is the charioteer which is Krishna the ego takes a beating seeing a larger stronger force and retreats into the body Arjun retreated into the body which was the chariot and abstains from actions which is the weapons which he threw down and the sense organs too are pulled back. He comes into a state of shutdown. So he can't see, hear or anything. He's in total panic attack. Now it is the job of the pure intellect, which is the charioteer. Job of every charioteer is to steer the chariot the correct way to take the master to the right destination. So it was the job of Krishna as the charioteer to guide Arjun towards the right path to gain success of dharma over adharma no matter how strong the adharma was and it is 7.47 at this point I am going to stop this we will start from stanza 11 next time session will be uh, chapter 2 we are going to take step by step because like I said the entire essence of the Gita is in chapter 2 so we are not going to speed it up we are going to take it as many stanzas as it goes and we are going to start tackling from stanza 11 in uh, next sunday session